From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. Prosecutors may deny it, but policing in the United States is on trial, along with Derek Chauvin, for the murder of George Floyd. We speak to the attorney who uncovered the truth in the death of Elijah McClain. Would George Floyd's case have been prosecuted if there hadn't been the video? If you just had those witnesses? Worried that it wouldn't have been. And that's an injustice. And people rally in D.C. and in 60 cities and towns to make the link between anti-Asian hate and the legacy of U.S. wars killing millions of Asian people in their homelands. For decades in the 1900s and even before that, American foreign policy has necessitated the violence, the destruction, and the death of Asian people in the countries they live in. All that mental health, stopping polluting pipelines, and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. Well, violence, trauma, and resistance remain the operative words for those of us choosing to relive, to bear witness again to the torture and death of George Floyd. As former police officer Derek Chauvin is on trial in Minneapolis, charged with Floyd's murder. Each day of the trial this week has brought new revelations from the people who witnessed up close a man die with the knee of another grown man on his neck for almost nine and a half minutes. On Monday, it was all the chorus of their voices pleading for a stranger's life. Bro, no, man, check her pulse. Bro, are you serious? Check her pulse. Let me neck, see bro? a pulse. Is he breathing right now? Check, check his pulse. Check his pulse. Check his pulse, Tao. Tao, check, right check his pulse. Tao, check his pulse, bro. Bro, check his pulse, bro. You bogus, bro. You bogus. Don't do drugs, bro. What is that? What do you think that is? You so you call what he doing okay? Get back. You call what he doing okay? You call. You call what you doing? You call what he doing okay, bro? Bro, bro, you 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 call. You think that's okay? Check his pulse. Check his Tao, check his pulse. Get back in the check. The man ain't moved yet, bro. The man ain't moved yet, bro. Bro, you're a bum, bro. You're a bum, bro. You're definitely a bum, bro. Tell me what he's called right now. Check the pulse. Bro, he has not moved not one time. He's all. No, they didn't kill him, bro. Bro. They killed him. What is he, 1087, bro? Bro, he's just going to let him keep his hand on his neck, bro? Tao, you going to let him keep that like that? You going to let him kill that man in front of you, bro? Huh? Huh? Bro, he's not even moving right now, bro. On Monday, it was also the 911 dispatcher, Gina Scurry, who thought surely the video on the screen at her office must be frozen with so many cops kneeling on a man down on the ground for so long. And the dispatcher would be the first of many to testify this week that she actually called the police on the police. Donald Williams, the martial arts fighter, who said Chauvin was using a blood choke and was committing murder, also called the police on the police. 
as did the Minneapolis EMT Genevieve Hansen, who you hear pleading for someone to take Floyd's pulse. This week's chorus of witnesses and their human reaction to the crime they saw before them clashed with the brutality and seeming indifference of the police force. Darnella Frazier, who was 17 when she shot the video that went viral around the world, took the stand on the second day of the trial. I heard George Floyd saying, I can't breathe, please get off of me. I can't breathe. He, he cried for his mom. He was in pain. It seemed like he knew. It seemed like he knew it was over for him. He was terrified. He was suffering. This was a cry for help. When I look at George Floyd, I look at my dad. I look at my brothers. I look at my cousins, my uncles, because they are all black. I have black. I have a black father. I have a black brother. I have black friends. And I, I look at that and I look at how that could have been one of them. It's been nights. I stayed up apologizing and, and apologizing to George Floyd for not doing more and not physically interacting and not saving his life, but it's like, it's not what I should have done. It's what he should have done. I spoke to attorney John Smith, executive director of the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs, who led the investigation released in February into the death of Elijah McLean. Elijah is the 23-year-old musician and massage therapist who in August 2019 was tackled and choked by Aurora, Colorado police before paramedics injected him with a powerful sedative. Elijah suffered a massive heart attack on the way to the hospital where he was declared brain dead and then taken off of life support six days later. The report concludes that the three police officers in Aurora, Jason Rosenblatt, Randy Rodima, and Nathan Woodyard had no legal basis to even stop Lesmore Frisk violently retain or put Elijah in a chokehold. Smith told me what the deaths of Elijah McClain and George Floyd say about policing in this country. As we watch the video of the death of George Floyd, there are some similarities that are disturbing. You know, you have Mr. Floyd is on the ground. He is restrained by four officers, one of whom is applying pressure to his neck. And Mr. McLean had two carotid holds applied to him. And the officers take every movement of Mr. Floyd when he makes an effort to breathe, when he makes an effort to get away from the pain as further justification for increased force against him, even while he was in handcuffs and he was on the ground and he had officers around him. And there is a tremendously disturbing parallel between the two cases in that regard. One of the things that I heard listening to the trial this week was the justification that was used because they had tried to put George Floyd in the patrol car, but he he did not want to go into the patrol car. He, he talked about feeling claustrophobic. He thought he would die in the car. And even the older man who testified this week, who, who witnessed George Floyd's death, uh, talked about how he had a friend who died in the back of a police car. 
there is a history, there's a community history there of people getting into a police car and then you never see them again. So I was just curious how you heard that type of evidence and, and whether that seemed to justify what they did. You know, police officers are trained in the circumstances of an arrest or an encounter to take control over the scene, to be in charge. Um, often you'll hear officers talk about how they're trained to ask and then tell and then make someone do something. And that old school approach, and particularly the implicit bias when it's applied in against a person of color, is very dangerous. And you end up with results like this, where the officers feel liberty to take any resistance by someone whom they're encountering as a justification for an increased use of force, escalates the situation. Mr. Floyd was clearly, when you see the, the video of him, when they're removing him from his car, when they're trying to put him through his car, he's clearly in emotional distress at that moment. The whole encounter is difficult for him. And, you know, there certainly is a significant question, open question about whether the officers had to take him into custody at all for passing a $20 forged bill or whether there, he could have been simply given a summons to appear in court, whether an arrest was even necessary. But even if an arrest was necessary and appropriate and authorized under law, the officers should have handled it very, very differently when you have somebody who is clearly in extreme stress. You had four officers and one person. He was in his car. He was posing no threat to anybody. Time, space, treating him with dignity, explaining to him what is happening, giving him the opportunity to take a breath and to feel more comfortable. There are strategies that recognize his humanity and what is happening with him that are vastly safer and more effective for everybody. But instead, what you had here was that the moment there was the slightest resistance to the officers, they just ramped up the force and ramped up the force and ramped up the force. And you see that far too often in cases across the country. And, you know, we've, as a country, we've paid a lot of attention in recent months to the way in which that impacts persons who may have mental illness or have developmental disabilities and have focused a lot of attention on alternative approaches to inter police interactions with persons with disabilities. But it is true for everybody, and especially in a community like Minneapolis, where you have this long record of tension between the police and communities of color. It's a department that has widely been recognized for a decade or more of having you know, just tremendous trouble with use of force against communities of color. And the ability of officers to recognize the humanity of the people with whom they're interacting and to give that humanity the space that it needs in order to handle the situation very differently would have had a very different result. But here, they just were going to assert their control over Mr. Floyd. And if he said no, they were going to say yes, and they were going to make him do it. And without any ability or any interest or any desire to have an interaction with him that recognized what this confrontation was doing to him. Right. Especially since it's not really clear that he even knew that this bill was a counterfeit bill. Right. <laughs> Let's assume for the sake of argument that he did pass a, you know, counterfeit bill. You might want to have a conversation with him about 
where he got it and what happened to it. And even if you determine that for some reason, you know, he was knowledgeable of its counterfeit status and responsible in some way for passing it off, you give him a summons to appear in court. You give him a court date. There's no reason to take him into custody. This is not a crime of violence. It's not an offense whereby taking him to custody, you're going to protect anybody or protect the public safety. This is something that could be resolved in a much more dignified way that respects his personal dignity. So I've heid a lot this week about the frailty of the defense strategy to blame George Floyd for his own death because of the drugs in his system or his poor health. And to also blame the crowd that gathered for distracting Chauvin and the other cops from, quote unquote, caring for Floyd. So what's your take on these strategies? Yeah, no, those strategies work. I think that the state has put on a very powerful case. It's been carefully presented and it's been very effectively presented. But the record of conviction of police officers around the country is not good. Juries are trained from elementary school to trust police. Surveys, even now, even in the wake of the demonstrations this summer and the national reckoning around race and, and policing, studies show that police officers are believed by most people, that their testimony is given greater credence than anyone and than anyone else. And so I think that the defense shouldn't work. I think if a jury listens to the evidence, that the evidence that has come in so far is extremely powerful. And in some ways, Whether Mr. Floyd's ingestion of drugs contributed to his death, made him more vulnerable or not, doesn't really change the fact that the officer's conduct wasn't justified, that that use of force wasn't justified, and that that use of force was the proximate cause of his death. Okay. And so it shouldn't work, but you know, I certainly won't sigh relief until the jury verdict comes back. And I've been joined by... Attorney Jonathan M. Smith, Executive Director of the Washington Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights and Urban Affairs. Thank you for joining me today, Jonathan. Thank you, Esther. It's been a pleasure. Tiasha Bankhead, Professor Emeritus of Social Work at California State University, hosted a conference Wednesday on reimagining black mental health for the organization she directs, Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth. She told On the Ground that a racist double standard is being used to paint George Floyd as a dangerous drug user. Justice abuse was not the reason that George Floyd died. He died because of police abuse misconduct and the devaluing of black lives. And so I think it's apparent to most of the people who are there, those who are looking for an out, who are looking for some way to not hold police officers accountable, will pull at any straws that they can find. But it is just untrue <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. to point to substance use um, as the basis of the death of this man. Um, and the death of this man that really belies not just our nation, but the entire world in recognizing the level of targeting of black people in America. In addition to vilifying Floyd as a drug user, Chauvin's defense is blaming the crowd 
for supposedly distracting Chauvin and the other officers from doing their job, when in fact the crowd was pleading for the police to do their job and protect and serve. In D.C., activists took to the streets to speak out against U.S. state violence beyond U.S. borders. Black Alliance for Peace held its third recent rally, this time at the State Department, to protest U.S. support for Haitian dictator Jovenel Moise and discriminatory immigration policies that are still leading to the deportation of record numbers of Haitians. Journalist Jacqueline Lukman spoke, explaining her support for Haiti and peoples around the globe. As an African in America, I am connected to the Haitian people. As a working class and poor person who is in solidarity with working class and poor people, I'm connected to the Haitian people. And I'm connected to all the people in Venezuela, in China, in Iran, in Brazil, in in El Salvador, in other countries that are rising up against U.S. imperialism and fighting for self-determination. And honestly, just as a human being who understands that it is the human right for self-determination that this country claims it honors, but has never allowed another country to have, I'm also connected to Haiti. We cannot win this fight against this system without international solidarity. So I'm here in support of the people of Haiti for a whole lot of reasons, but mainly because this system has to end. D.C. was also one of 60 cities and towns where rallies were held March 27th to protest anti-Asian hate and China bashing. Voices from the D.C. rally in Chinatown in Northwest D.C. after headlines. As for labor rights issues here at home, Thomas O'Rourke has an update on the fight to establish a union at the behemoth Amazon. With a reportedly high percentage of mail-in ballots returned, voting ended Monday, March 29th for the closely watched union election at Amazon's facility in Bessemer, Alabama. Then the next day, closed-door wrangling began between Amazon and the retail, wholesale, and department store union with the National Labor Relations Board serving as umpire. The closed sessions involved the NLRB reading names of received ballots, with opposing teams from the corporation and the union deciding voter by voter whether to contest the ballot. Reuters reports that 19 former employees received ballots, and several of those voted, all contested by Amazon. Uncontested votes will be counted quickly enough. And even if the number of contested ballots isn't sufficient to change the outcome, the final results still could take several weeks to determine, according to the union. Meanwhile, Amazon upper management tweeted strong pushback in its PR war against unionizing workers, accusing Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren of hypocrisy and meddling on behalf of their warehouse employees. In any case, the nearly 6,000 Amazon employees in Bessemer and the thousands more across the country reportedly anticipating a union victory and hoping to build on it, will have to wait a bit longer in order to know whether the union is finally coming to Amazon. 
For On the Ground, this is Thomas O'Rourke. President Biden was touting the creation of good-paying jobs when he went to Pittsburgh to announce his $2 trillion infrastructure plan that environmentalists say falls way short of what is needed to cut the carbon footprint of the United States and put this country on the path to green energy. Representative Ocasio-Cortez said in an interview with MSNBC that $10 trillion is what is needed. News of Biden's announcement coincided with a rally in March Thursday in D.C., led by indigenous youth and organizers with the Indigenous Environmental Network. They are still fighting the Dakota Access Pipeline and Line 3 Pipeline in Minnesota. They said in their statement that the Biden administration should follow the mandate given with their vote and revoke the Army Corps of Engineers permits for Line 3 and shut down DAPL. They say the pipelines are violating native land and endangering water and other natural resources. That was made, and the black snake, as was mentioned before, represents the pipelines that are crossing indigenous lands or crossing stolen lands. And finally, in culture and media, historians are blasting a new proposed law in South Carolina that would require teaching in schools based on Trump's ahistorical 1776 report. We'll keep an eye on that, for sure. And supporters of journalists Julian Assange and Mumia Abu-Jamal are still advocating for their release from prison. The website's actionforassange.com, that's action, the, the numeral for assange.com, and freemumia.com are two sites with more information. On Saturday, April 3rd at 10.30 a.m. Eastern Time, the D.C. Black History Celebration Committee is hosting a virtual remembrance of the assassination of the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. More information is at D.C. Black History Celebration Committee on Facebook. The program will also stream on YouTube. And you can write Mr. Black History at Yahoo.com for more information. Also on Saturday, April 3rd, 2021 at 3 p.m., there will be a celebration of the life of musician and singer, songwriter, political activist and attorney, Ann Feeney. More information is at annfeeney.com. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. This is brought to you by the red, the black, and the green. Crossroads. Cop shot 30 rounds in 15 seconds Four month old baby in the rear section Another mother gotta call the reverend A dead daughter, sister, veteran Now the media posing all the questions Slandering the victims, pointing out aggression Somehow the angel of God kept that baby protected Cause grandma prayed beyond the pictures and the necklace It's shooting up our boys out here like tetanus Where the rage, where the cries, where the lectures Where the special team of inspectors Made in America, where the projectors where the Lord to protect us The media constantly wanna infect us Cops like the TSA, they wanna inspect us And if we don't cooperate, they shoot us or arrest us But How you gon' fall when you ain't even trying to fly, yeah How you gon' fall How you gon' fall when you ain't even trying to fly, yeah How you gon' fall How you gon' fall when you ain't even trying to fly, Feel angry. I mean, frankly, these 
dudes is too swanky I'ma speak the truth whether or not if you thank me Plus I do it for my ancestors mainly You could never claim me Tame me or change me Selective morality and free will ain't the same things Different murder, different mother, the same screams So consumed with stuff we don't notice the plain things Or real things or Today we are here to collectively demand an end To anti-Asian violence And violence against working women most importantly, we are here to stand in solidarity with those who are impacted by white supremacy and violence. Because only in a violent and cruel society are tragedies like what happened in Atlanta normalized. From last year up until now, there have been over 3,800 hate crimes against Asian Americans. We must recognize that this spike of violence is not new to the Asian community. It goes way, way before the pandemic. In fact, Let's concretely define what violence is. We can't address violence against the Asian American community without addressing the root cause of this violence, US imperialism. From Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam, Korea, the Philippines, and so on, millions of our Asian siblings have been murdered, tortured, and imprisoned. Entire communities have been bombed and destroyed at the hands of the U.S. government and the military. Remember that this is also the same violence that our black, brown, indigenous, and Latinx siblings have faced and even still face today through state forces like the police and ICE. A lot of us are here in the U.S. in the first place because of its imperialist violence through the military, supporting fascist leaders, plundering our home country's natural resources, which continue to torment our nations even today. This violence displaces our families and loved ones, forcing them to migrate abroad by the thousands every day to escape poverty and search for better opportunities. For what? Only for them to be met with racialized threats and attacks? For them to be murdered? Violence is leaving workers like the six slain women in Atlanta in vulnerable conditions. Violence is leaving our Filipino nurses extremely vulnerable at the hands of this pandemic with them making 4% of nurses here and 30% of nurse deaths from COVID. Violence is forced assimilation, causing us to lose touch of our own cultures, languages, and even robbing us of our own identities. Violence is environmental destruction, allowing poor countries and marginalized communities to bear the brunt of this climate crisis. Violence is mass deportations, which disproportionately target poor and working class people. Violence is U.S. military presence in bases in countries like the Philippines under the guise of assistance and aid. This aid instead funds the state-sponsored violence that is being used to kill and suppress our own people back home who organize for genuine democracy and peace. <laughs> violence is capitalism that prioritizes profit over people, leaving working folks and their families without food on the table, without adequate housing, and without proper health care. We must recognize that white supremacy, misogyny, xenophobia, classism, and sexism are all tools that U.S. imperialism uses to divide our communities because it knows that when we stand together, it is powerless and it is weak.
Although it's important to call out these acts of violence and hate, it's even more important to get involved and to get organized within our own communities while standing in solidarity with other struggles. In the end, fighting against racism requires us to be anti-capitalist and anti-imperialist. Because assimilation will not save us. It never has and it never will. It is only liberation through building collective power that we will see an end to white supremacist violence and an end to imperialism. My name is Aisha Burwa. I'm a second year law student at UDC Law. I currently serve as the president of our Black Law Students Association, but I've been involved in activism work for the past couple of years. It started intensifying last summer. I went to a lot of protests and things like that and organized a sit-in for black women at the Supreme Court. But I really just came out here today to reiterate the importance of fighting white supremacy and how these hate crimes and the hatred towards marginalized communities are rooted in that ultimately. And we all have a, a duty to stand in solidarity with each other and understand each other's experiences and our history. I know I talked a lot about there has been a, a very bad history of separation between the black and Asian communities due to racism that the black community has faced from the Asian community. So certain people were hesitant to stand out against them, but I think it's important that we acknowledge that history and understand how we can move forward from that and work together as a collective to fight in the same goal. Uh, any particular insights you have about what's happening uh, from the legal perspective? Yeah, sure. And I talked about this as well. Um, a lot of racism and a lot of these issues are rooted in law. And that's why a lot of things have been allowed to happen. We see that with police brutality, why a lot of um, victims don't get justice in that regard. And I was talking about just here, it was legal to intern in, put Asian Americans in internment camps. And that was all rooted in discrimination and racism. So when I learn the things I do in school and I learn how to analyze the law and I see the, the room for deliberation on certain issues pertaining to human rights, I'm understanding that these issues happen because the laws are the way they are. That's why we need more lawyers of color and we need to avenues for um, advocate for changes in the law and things like that, having representation, all of that will have an, a significant impact on the way legal analysis gets done in the courts and things like that. My name is Hodge. I'm a student at the George Washington University, and I'm an organizer in an, a student organization called Students Against Imperialism. So as a student of history, as a student of American foreign policy, you become very aware of the fact that anti-Asian violence is quite literally American foreign policy. For decades in the 1900s and even before that, American foreign policy has necessitated the violence, the destruction, and the death of Asian people in the countries they live in. From the atomic bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, to the anti-communist terror the, the, under that guise, millions of Cambodians, millions of people in Laos were, were murdered children, families, for, and their crime, their, their crime was nothing other than being citizens of these countries. In Vietnam, you had thousands of bombs dropped, chemical weapons, you had the, the use of Agent Orange. To this very day, there are children being born with deformities, entire populations being impacted, decades onward, because of the use
use of Agent Orange by the U.S. military. In Laos and Cambodia, they call it death from beneath. Unexploded landmines are to this very day killing citizens in these countries. So when we talk about uh, anti-Asian violence and we hear uh, people from the Democratic Party talking about their support, their thoughts and prayers, we have to understand that they still stand for American foreign policy. American imperialism is their prerogative. So it means nothing when they say stop Asian hate. How do you stop Asian hate by supporting sanctions against North Korea? I mean, consistently in the media we are told to demonize North Korea, to be wary of them, that you know they are a threat to us. America has nearly a thousand military bases across the world. The rest of the countries have some 30 combined. Please tell me how any other country in the world is a threat and not America. The American military... The American military is a global parasite, is a global occupier, and it is objectively a terrorist organization. Ask the people... To the, to the people of the Middle East, ask the people of Iraq, ask the people in Vietnam, ask the people of Korea. I mean, do, can we blame the Koreans for being wary of America, specifically the American military, when under the, the Korean War, the United States killed nearly up to a quarter of their population. But in the media, we're told, you know, North Korea is going to strike us, North Korea has nuclear weapons, we need to be afraid. We need to be aware, we need to be critical, and we need to study American history and understand that this is how they manufacture consent for us to go to war on our dimes and kill foreign people in our names. So, we need to be, we need to be cognizant of this, we need to let history be a lesson, and we need to form lasting solidarity. We need to reject the othering of foreign populations, of the Chinese, of the Koreans, and really understand that war hurts us all. Imperialism is a global threat, it's a global enemy. So with that, I want to thank everybody for being here. Continue to tap into the anti-war movement in your area, answer coalition, student organizations on your campuses if you're a student, and Shameless plug, follow Students Against Imperialism on Instagram at GWUSAI. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much, Hadra. Congress says more war, we say no more. Congress says more war, we say no more. Congress says more war, we say no more. Congress says more war, we say Students Against Imperialism for speaking to us. And you know, don't you ever let anyone tell you that the young people, this generation, is lazy or not involved or uninterested in what's happening in the world around them. This is a dynamic generation. This is a brilliant generation. This is a generation that has had a political development unlike anything we've seen. I've seen young people 
on TikTok that know more about what's happening than people 20, 30, 40 years older than them. So believe you me, the young folks are all right. And so, we've talked a lot today, and rightfully so, about imperialism and about the inherent racism in imperialism. But there's also the system of capitalism that is at the root of all of this. Malcolm X once said, you can't have capitalism without white supremacy. He said, you show me a capitalist, I'll show you a bloodsucker. And so this is the reality, both historically and today. And to connect this with the issues we've been discussing, I want you to help me, excuse me, join me in welcoming Katie from the Party for Socialism and Liberation. Give Katie a round of applause as she comes. with the Party for Socialism and Liberation, or PSL. And um, I'm here today because an injury to one is an injury to all. That's why we're all here. We need solidarity. We need to join together to fight this racism. So I thank you all for coming out. This is an amazing crowd. And I'm just really happy that y'all are here. I also want to talk about the origin of racism in this country and some of the things building on what Hadra and other speakers have said. The U.S. likes to say that we're this amazing democracy, right? That's our legacy. But it's really a legacy of genocide and kidnapping and violence. And that legacy is still well alive today. So. This idea that we're this amazing country, you know, we have to look all the way back at how everything that happened 400 years ago is still happening today. And it's why I'm here as a socialist, because the system that got us here, this capitalist, racist, genocidal, violent system, is something that we need to work together to fight against. So, you know, what Sean said, you can't have capitalism without white, without white supremacy, you can't have capitalism without racism. Well, what do we have instead? So, as a socialist, that's why I think it's important to be here today, because we spend a trillion on war, on the military, on violence. I mean, let's just call it for what it is. It's violence. Why aren't we spending that money on housing? Thank you so much, Katie. The people united will never be defeated. The people. I said the people united will never be defeated. The people united. I said the people united. The people united.
You have been listening to voices of those participating in D.C.'s rally to stop Asian violence and stop China bashing held March 27th. The rally here in D.C. was one of 60 held around the country in cities and towns sponsored by the Answer Coalition. This is On the Ground. Stay with us. Black lives matter more than actual things. We barely know how to treat each other. Mistreat each other is what we teach each other. I'm not blaming our people or dejecting black. We started killing our own and started accepting that. I'm That's why. Cause how you gonna fall when you ain't even tried to fly? Yeah. How you gonna fall? How you gonna fall when you ain't even tried to fly? Yeah. How you gonna fall when you ain't even tried to fly? Today I'm here because we wanted to give solidarity. Uh, we had our own, uh, I live in Fairfax, Virginia, and we had our own rally in front of a comfort woman statue in Annandale, Virginia on Monday. It was a candlelight vigil. We had a lot of community members who wanted to come together, who wanted to share and mourn together and also listen to each other and speak out. Don't stop being the model Asian, model minority. We wanted to speak out. We wanted a place to come together. And when I, when I saw this post that you're having this rally together, we thought we must come out. This is a poster that I made, uh, that I personally made because I am involved not only, um, I'm involved with the comfort woman issue, uh, which is um, sex, sexual slavery during by the Japanese military dur during World War II. When I saw the news articles about the spa shooting, I immediately connected. It's Asian women, the fetishization of Asian women that is part of this crime. It's the gun violence that's part of this crime. But all these images of Asian women in the spa and the women in the sex working industry, it's all connected to the U.S. troops wherever they are in Asia country, especially in Korea, which has the biggest U.S base in South Korea, they call, they so call it alliance, South Korea, U.S. alliance, spending our tax money, U.S., uh, we, when we want to end the 70-year-old war, they want to continue their presence in South Korea using our tax money, using our, my, uh, my cousins who live in South Korea, their tax money to keep the U.S. bases there and to continue the sexualization of ladies, slavery, or the comfort woman, using our Asian ladies as comfort women. So thank you for having this rally. Let's continue to stay in solidarity. The MC mentioned earlier, let's not burn out, continue to keep the flame, and continue to stand up together. I wanted to end with the chant. Asian women are not white men's comfort women. Down, down with Asian hate. Up, up with liberation. Down, down with Asian hate. Up, up with liberation. Down, down with Asian hate. Up, up with liberation. Down, down with Asian hate. Thank you.
Alright, make some noise. You know, I'm so glad that Echo raised this concept of the model minority that have been forced on the Asian American Pacific Islander people in this country. And I immediately thought about David Dow. Y'all remember David Dow? Back in 2017, this was a Vietnamese American doctor who was forcibly removed from an airplane because he refused to give up his seat. Now, what could be more respectable? What could be more model than a doctor? But you see, this racist country doesn't care about how respectable you are. It doesn't care about your degrees. It doesn't care about your accomplishments. It doesn't care if you're a quote-unquote good citizen. There was a time when Chinese folks in this country had to carry papers just to prove they were citizens. And there, there were even situations where if you were found to be without these papers, you could go to court and have to have a judge sign off and say, this person is in the country lawfully. Imagine having to carry documentation that you are lawfully in a country that you were born in. That's the depth of racism that exists in this country. Cross state. Hard to believe, that seems out of my league. Duck and dodging while the cops out hawking they Jeff T. Best to believe they ain't catch my ear. Prison my last fear here, they might scratch my ear. And I ain't got an itch pause, ain't that about it? Cause it's like they have to feel. Coach Tom Jonovich, y'all. I live 30 minutes away from where Freddie Gray was slayed. That reminds me to pray. I know that any day could be the day, but hey, I'm authentic while I'm off in it. I just hope my homies all can get it for us all finished. But with the color that my skin be, they pin me to failure. Lest I grow 10 feet or beat Iggy as egg. In a rap battle, but not it's a battle for life. Forget a chess camera, they killed us on camera twice. Twice, twice, twice. Before the music break, you heard Sean Blackman and the activist Echo from Virginia uh, speaking at the No to Asian Violence and Stop China Bashing rally held March 27th here in Washington, D.C., part of a national action by the Answer Coalition. And next is poet Natachi Mez. She read her work at the Reimagining Black Mental Health Conference sponsored by Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth. A portion of her work titled Reimagining Lineage is on the ground's first offering for National Poetry Month. This piece is tentatively titled Lineage is Not Linear. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, silence is the complete absence of sound. Complete absence sound. Complete absence sound. Complete. Contrary to popular belief, I believe that we are all complete beings. But would I be remiss to act as if we aren't missing anything to miss? 
is to long for. Somehow I have been found transforming my fault lines into lines of poetry. This is how I excavate my roots. Knowledge forms with a quake, yet whispers to me softly. Lineage is not merely linear. My jumps. Don't you know where you come from? My tongue is transfusion, meaning donation, meaning everything I am has been given to me. My parents immigrated from Nigeria and I'm still counting their sacrifices like blessings, but migration bears a heavy knife. What dies and so I live with a funeral at the tip of my tongue, always mourning opportunity for its cost, a moment of silence for everything that I have taken for granted. I am racing toward the family tree, arms wide open, deflowered and muddied, begging to be branch. When I am fruit, I am fruit, I am fruit. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, silence is the complete absence of sound. Absence. No one could find the apple. How far from the tree could it have fallen if it fell? And no one was around to hear, did it make a soundtrack of America? Strange fruit, symphonies of black death swaying, an orchestra of white supremacy. Many apples did not fall. They were plucked like the strings of a harp. What I am saying is this was a song, unofficial national anthem. America is no Eden. Adam's apples, wealth of nation, shame was our birthright. Look how clothed we are, dressed in skin, always on the eve of baptism, wading in the waters, yet still enough buoyancy in the black to lift every voice and sing, and sing, and sing. Jesus broke bread, black folks break beats. Different church, still communion, rhythm, sound, interspersed with silence, testimony. Even where there are holes, there is holiness. I am standing face to face with the family tree. It asks me, don't you know where you come from? I nod my head, marvel at how seeds scatter. Any soil that catches you, mothers you somehow. So many curriculums attempt to alienate us from ourselves, but contrary to popular belief, I believe that we are all complete beings. That double consciousness is an out-of-body experience that we are relearning how to return to body, heaven embodied. None of us are property, never three-fifths person, fractured, but never fraction, can't even fathom our infinity. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, silence is the complete absence of sound. Sound is vibration. Every morning I rise and I set my timer for 10 minutes, close my eyes, listen to my breath like Atlantic waves. Within the body, my belly rise and fall. Beyond the body, 
I hear the wind the castle burns within the mind. I witness space expand. Sometimes a poem is birthing itself between breaths and I am watching conception. Everything I am has been given to me to transform. I am fruit, which means I am also seed. Everywhere I go, I plant myself. In space, there is no sound. Sound needs a medium in which to travel. Here on earth, my words transport through air and beat against drums, brush hair cells and wade through air fluid. Sound comes like a swim. With a stroke, there is no place on earth. With complete absence of sound, there is no time on earth when we are completely absent. Sounds like the truth. Sound is vibration. Vibration is life. We are fractured, but never fraction. Shh. Listen. Can you hear the infinity? Ah. Listen. The seeds scatter. We are fruit. Everywhere we go, we are planted. Listen. Lineage is not merely linear. We are all raising each other. And poet Natachi Mez will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. Special thanks to Chantel James and Thomas O'Rourke for their contributions to the show. You can check out all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. And you can reach out to us and support us there as well. You can also let us know you like the show at On the Ground Show on Facebook, Twitter, or on patreon.com at On the Ground Show. Our new podcast, On the Ground with Esther Ivarum, is on all your podcast platforms. Our new podcasts, our social media pages, and website all have a protest sign with green lettering that says On the Ground. The music we played this hour included How You Gonna Fall by The Crossroads featuring Phil Day, And our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Ivarum. Until next time, keep raising your voice. This is Esther Ivarum, producer and host of On the Ground, thanking you for listening and for being a part of our audience. And I'm asking you to please partner with us in keeping alive this independent grassroots news program from Washington, D.C. Your fully tax-deductible donation of as little as $3 a month will help us keep lifting up voices of activism and resistance to corporate power and corporate media. So please go to our page at patreon.com forward slash on the ground show that's patreon p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show where we post the shows and bonus material 
Or you can see all the ways to support, including end-of-the-year giving and PayPal on our website, which you know is onthegroundshow.org. Thank you.